Oh, good. <laughs> Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, You saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. For the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. May the words that come from my mouth make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ the King is an expression that some find problematic. But I've always found that it's an expression that I could work with. If you heard my sermon last week, you'll know that I think that I can theologize anything, including Christ the King. One of the things that's made that in, uh, easier for me personally is that for the entirety of my life, I'd never experienced life with a king in it. We had a queen. Sure, I could look at the history books, at fairy stories or movies to get some sort of an idea what a king might be, what a good one, what a bad one might, might do. But because of Queen Elizabeth II, because she was the present monarchical reality in my life, I actually felt a sense of liberation to attribute to Jesus the king-like qualities that I thought Jesus should have. But this year, King Charles has caused me a bit of a problem. And so I find myself again being challenged to rethink everything. Please don't think I'm passing judgment or critique or making political commentary about the place of the monarchy. That's not what I feel challenged to rethink today. The big question that I found myself wrestling with is this. Was it really okay for me to attribute the qualities that I wanted Jesus to have? Isn't that kind of like 
me creating Jesus in my ideological image? What if Jesus isn't some of those qualities that I've given him? What if he is some of the qualities that I or others personally don't connect with? While the notion of Christ the King is nothing new, it's an accusation that led towards his crucifixion. The actual feast or festival of Christ the King or the reign of Christ has only been around for less than 100 years. It was actually instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 in response to the rampant nationalism that was present in Europe following World War I. Perhaps the recent rise in nationalism in various parts of our world should give us cause to pause and consider Christ the King afresh. One of the problematic elements of the expression of Christ the King is that king and kingdom is antiquated. The church today is often criticised for not being relatable. So maybe we should avoid terminology and imagery that people don't relate to. Which got me wondering, why does Jesus use kingdom speak so much. In fact, the kingdom of God is the thing the gospel writers record Jesus saying the most. Not sin, not forgiveness and grace, not heaven, not how we should be living, not relationships. Money does run a, a, a distant second, but the kingdom of God is a standout front runner. So when I thought about it, I realised that king and kingdom were already antiquated in Jesus' time. They were living in emperor and empire times. Herod was a king, but he was only allowed to be called a king because Rome said it was okay that he could call himself a king. And everybody knew that Rome was where all the power really lay. Who could save you? Rome, the empire, Caesar, the emperor. That was the salvation narrative of Jesus' time. It did make me wonder how much more subversive would Jesus have been if he used words like emperor, empire, or Caesar. But maybe that's the point. This is language that we can use to compare and contrast culture, even today. George Orwell said in 1941 that the only way for us to understand modern society is for us to understand the politics of it. He went on to say that the reason that Hitler and Mussolini were able to rise to power was because they understood that and the church did not. Politics is at least in part a wrestle to find a way of life 
that will rescue, restore, restructure, sustain or renew us, kind of like salvation, but without God. For the church to understand the politics of our time does not mean that we have to agree with it or change because of it. What it does mean is that we need to understand what our culture says will save us. And that's because, and that's so we can continue to proclaim the kingdom of God. Proclaiming is the term that is most associated with the word kingdom in scripture. And it doesn't just mean to talk. I love the way that Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase of the Bible puts it in a verse from James, the letter uh, from James. In James 2.17, Eugene's words uh, have it imagining going something like this. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can't help but worry that there's been so much outrageous nonsense coming from the Christian churches that it's been so hard for our society to see what the kingdom of God is really about and how different it is from the world in which we live. Since the Christianization of the Western world, which began back in 312 with the conversion of Constantine, Christianity has at least in part captured the culture. But I've begun to wonder in recent times if the culture has now, at least in part, captured us. And so there's no better time to look at what the kingdom of God is really about. What better time than with the advent of the first ever king in my lifetime to start rethinking kings and kingdoms. Have you ever noticed how deeply theological the words to God save the king actually are? A king is supposed to be, as the world sees it, the one who saves. But the words of this anthem tell us that the king actually needs saving himself by God. Being saved is a big theme in today's Bible reading. We hear the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then one of the criminals who hang there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The ability and capacity to save ourselves is a dominant narrative in our time. If you've heard expressions like living your best life, living your truth, being all you can be, following your dreams, all of those are variations of the same view that we have the capacity within us to save ourselves. Who needs a higher power? It's individualism, but with conditions. The biggest condition being 
you can't impinge, impinge on another's individualism. But when you look at the salvation that you find in Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, you find the absolute opposite to individualism. If the church could get this, if I could get this and live this, then I wonder whether the kingdom would seem as countercultural to the salvation of the Roman Empire back then when it talked about empire and, and kingdom of God as we might do today when we talk about individualism and the kingdom of God. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've been singing a new song over the last few weeks. It's called Simple Kingdom. And it's got some amazing lyrics in it. Um, I, was, I was both flattered and humbled um, the other day when I was having coffee with Elroy and she thought that I'd written the song. Oh, wow, like, there's some amazing lyrics there. I wish I could write lyrics like that. Um, but, but I love the way that the lyrics point out the radical contrast of the kingdom of God. So let's just read some of the lyrics. If you've just focused on the tune over the last few weeks or if you haven't been here the last few weeks, check these out. Your kingdom is simple, as simple as love. You welcome the children, you stopped for the one. We want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple, Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom is humble, as humble as death. His king is a saviour who gave his last breath. So may we die daily, our pride laid to rest. Your kingdom is humble and the broken are blessed. And the last verse is my favourite. Your kingdom is backwards, it flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, this world calls a curse. The small become great and the first become last. The last become first, sorry. Your kingdom is backwards. I got that backwards. Lord, teach us to serve. Amazing words, aren't they? There's no individualism here. It's all relationships, community, connection, where the other person really matters. It's pretty different to the individualism culture that we live in. And in a world that's been deprived of relationship, community and connection over the last few years, I wonder could these be words of salvation for some? Which brings me to another dominant narrative of our time, and that is compliance. Ironically, for individualism to be successful, everyone has to comply and agree not to impinge on anyone else. And also there's been other levels of compliance that we've lived with over the last few years. I think one of the lies that the church has told itself, because in part that the church has captured the culture, is that everyone has to believe and behave consistently with what we call Christian values. 
I cringe every time now I hear an expression like, but this is supposed to be a Christian country. I cringe because our demographers tell us that we aren't anymore, even if we ever were. And I want you to notice what happens in this passage. Jesus is criticised by the soldiers. He's criticised by one of the guys on the cross next to him. Yet, he's noticed by the other one. As I read through the Gospels with this in mind, thinking of how they knit together, I really got the sense that Jesus is actually okay that not everyone will accept his teaching. It seems like he expects it. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love everyone and the whole of creation. I believe God does and that there's a place in God's kingdom for everyone. But Jesus doesn't try and convert everyone. He's not successful even if he is doing what he's doing with the people around him. So perhaps the kingdom is not about just the compliant few. So why do we as Christians and the church get hung up about the idea that everybody has to believe and behave in the same way that we do? Ultimately, it's a relational encounter with God and the risen Christ that will do the conversion and the power of the Holy Spirit that will work in and through a person to, uh, to do something that we sum up as conversion. It's rarely the words of a group of pious, pompous, and dare I say it, hypocritical group of Christians. wonder why at the moment in the world and we're living in, I see so much anxiety in the Christian church because our influence has been diminished and we're being criticised by the world. When criticism of the church and the salvation that was seen in the proclamation of the kingdom of God should be expected. Criticism was a very present reality for the early church. You might have seen this early example of Roman graffiti. It's by some crocodile who thinks it's fun to poke fun of a Christian name, Alexamenos. And the words are transcribed underneath a picture of Jesus with the head of a donkey, say, Alexamenos worships his God. Like Jesus himself, Alexamenos drew ridicule for what he believed in and, and probably more so for how he behaved. But to claim Christ as king means to live as if you believe that it's true. And in a world that is so materialistic and so individualistic and pluralistic, 
to live like this song says, backwards, where the small become great and the last become first, that will draw ridicule from many. But like the other guy on the cross, like I'm sure some of the people who were around Alexamenos, who were actually influenced by the way he acted and what he said, some will notice. Some is enough for God. Some has always been enough for God. And it should be enough for us too. On the one hand, we could look at the statistics of our local parish boundaries and say, oh, only 11% of them say they're Anglican. Only 46% of them say they're Christian. Or we could say, oh my goodness, 7,500 people just in a little area of central Gold Coast call themselves Anglican and 46% of them say that they're Christian. That is some. That's some that God can work with. I don't know about you, but I'm choosing to get excited by those numbers. Not confronted and discouraged and anxious about them. You may have never had an issue with the idea that Christ is King. But in our rethinking of it, maybe you should have, because it's actually pretty radical. You might never have liked the term Christ, in King, Christ the King, and you've preferred other, other titles for Jesus. But maybe my rethinking might encourage yours, because there is power in this idea, power enough to save, to save some. And that's been God's subversive plan throughout human history. To save some for the benefit of the whole world. Throughout human history, it's always just been the few and the some that have made the differences. And I pray that we might now count ourselves as one of those some. And that we might through our continued proclamation of the kingdom of God, cause others to rethink the world they're living in and how radical this kingdom of God is, that it might be something that they might like to belong to. I'm not suggesting we stop evangelizing. In fact, I think we should do it more perhaps should change our posture and realise that this opportunity that we have is precious and this message is radical and not everybody is going to accept it, but there will be some. And I pray over this Christmas season that is just upon us, Lord, that you would stir through this church, that we would be ready to welcome those some with the love and hope and 
backwards-facing kingdom principles that you speak of. That they would be authentically incarnated in the lives of this church and all the churches on the Gold Coast. Build your kingdom and grow your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand together as we start to worship our King and Saviour.